It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only, call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 93- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and welcome into the virtual bible study uh, today is thursday june 24th and we're glad you're with us here um if you're listening to our audio-only feed, you may be hearing a uh, voice that you're not used to uh, hearing. And if you're watching online, you might see some folks that uh, maybe you're not used to seeing. So I guess we uh, should explain ourselves here. I'm Anthony Petrochko, a member here at College View Church of Christ, and uh, our usual hosts, Jacob and Greg Gwynn, are not able to be here tonight. So we are uh, attempting to fill uh, some pretty big shoes tonight in their stead. And joining me on the other side of the table here is Monty Overton, a member here at College U. Uh, good evening, Monty. Good evening, Anthony. It's good to be here tonight. I'm glad to have you. Thanks for coming and helping us out here tonight. It's going to be uh, an adventure, and we're looking forward to uh, another good study from God's Word, as we always have every Thursday night. And, of course, this is uh, an interactive study if you're uh, listening to us live, we encourage you to join into the discussion tonight. There's a few different ways you can do that. You can email us your comments at questions at collegeview.com, or if you'd like, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven, and we'll attempt to get you uh, live on the show. Hopefully, we can work out any technical difficulties that we might have if you choose to call us tonight. Um, but you can also join in the chat room on our Ustream page at ustream.tv. You can uh, log into the chat room there and participate live and uh, send us in your comments, and we'll do our best to try to work them into the show tonight. Well, we uh, the topic that we chose for tonight's study is definitely an important one. Uh, we wanted to talk about how the Christian should go about choosing a mate or a spouse. What are some things that uh, Christians should keep in mind and some, some things that they need to consider when choosing a mate and uh monty we sent out a list of three questions today to our uh to our email list and we're hoping we could get some responses for those yeah the first question we had was please list in order of importance the three most important things that a person should be looking for in a mate and then question two was list any red flag warning signs that one should be aware of in a potential mate and then question three is how and where can a god-fearing person find a mate so we'll be talking a bit about this subject tonight about finding a mate and going over those questions as we go through the study right so uh, i'm sure that you have some thoughts and some opinions uh and some scriptures that you'd share in response to those questions so if you have those go ahead and and email them in at questions at collegeview.com and we should be have uh, more than enough time to work those responses into our show tonight so monty certainly uh you know, choosing a mate is a is a very important decision in one's life, and as a Christian, with any big decision, we should certainly be looking to the Bible as as God's will and God's authority for our lives, and determining, you know, what can the Bible tell us about choosing a mate and making that choice wisely. It's definitely a big decision. You know, realistically, our choice of a mate is one of the most important and biggest decisions that we'll ever make in our life. I suppose the biggest decision is whether or not we're going to become a Christian. But when we've done that, then the next decision we have to make is who we're going to have for a mate because it's so important that we choose someone that will help us to live a Christian life and not someone that's going to hinder us. And so, you know, that's it's very important, I believe, that we look to God's Word and find out what the qualities that we should be looking for in a, in a spouse and, and going with that direction. Exactly. And, you know, this is, as you said, a, a big decision. It's not something that we just want to fall into by accident or something that we just want to deal with flippantly and not give a lot of thought to. You know, as we, as we look to God's Word, of course, we know that wisdom resides with God. 
And uh, we're told, for example, in, uh, in, in the first chapter of James, verse 5, that, that we should you know, seek wisdom from God and that we should ask God for wisdom and that he'd be willing to grant us that wisdom to make these important decisions. Uh, but that really kind of goes against uh, society at large and in how marriage and love is portrayed in our popular culture. So many times we see, say, in movies or in TV or in books, what have you, the decision of, of marriage is something that is just kind of all, uh, you know, flowers and, and rainbows, and it's it's oftentimes simply a romantic thing. It's uh, love at first sight and these kinds of things where the people just fall head over heels for each other and there's really no thought or preparation given to it. And so you know, if we just look to society and popular culture, we might see that this topic of choosing a mate doesn't really seem all that important. But uh, as we've said, for Christians, it's, it's one of the biggest decisions that we can make. You know, I was watching a movie one time it's several years ago, and I don't really can't tell you what the movie was about or whatever, but the, there was a, the idea of marriage was brought up in the movie, and this particular one woman that was in this discussion said was talking about this man and said, well, he'll make a, fi- he'll make a good first husband. And so the idea of marriage to them was... I think, and I think a lot of people in the world approach it this way today. Is it's more like a business decision. I, now I need to get this kind of person for a first husband or wife because that'll help advance my career or whatever in certain ways, or make me more eligible in a next marriage. You know, or I can learn this from them, but I don't want to stay with them forever. And so I use them for whatever I can use them for as a first husband or wife, and then proceed on from there, like it's advancing a cause somehow or another. But as we as we study the Bible, that's not at all what the Bible tells us and not at all the approach that God has given to, to instructed us to be approaching marriage. Exactly. And, you know, a scripture that we that we reference quite often and really has applicability in all aspects of our life is Colossians three seventeen. It says, Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So whatever we do in word or in deed, we need to do it with uh, in the name or with the authority of, of the Lord Jesus. So any decision that we make in life, we should be looking to God, uh, looking to his word to make sure that it's, it's something that is in agreement with, with, his, with his will. Yeah, I think a lot of people misunderstand that scripture when it says in the name of the Lord Jesus. They think as long as they pencil Jesus' name in beside it or ascribe it to him in some way or another that that's what it's talking about. But it's talking about, as you mentioned, the authority of Jesus. And as we look through the Bible, we can see that Every aspect of our lives are, is covered in principles or, in, or even in direct commands or statements in the Bible. So we can look through there and find authority for doing things, and we are authorized in the Bible to be married. So I think, but, but it also gives us rules to govern that relationship. Exactly. So, again, as with anything in our lives, when we make have big decisions to make or even small decisions to make, we should definitely be keeping God first in the forefront of our minds. You know, Monty, we, we talk a lot about the state of the family and, and the state of marriage in our current society. And, you know, we see so many divorces and so many failed marriages all around us. And it, it's not something that's new. Uh, uh, we were looking at, at some of the material that we had to prepare for this, uh, for this, um, study tonight. And one of the reasons that is cited for the fall of the Roman Empire apparently was that uh, the rapid increase in divorce and the undermining of the sanctity and dignity of the home, and you know we know that that the family unit in the home is is God's uh, is something that is again ordained by God. God has certain will uh, governing how the family should work, and when that breaks down, when we when we start to change God's design for the family then our society suffers as a result of that. And we, we can certainly see the f- effects of, of the devil, really, at work in destroying our family, uh, the family unit, and destroying marriages, uh, particularly in our society. You know, when we think of our, and we look at our society, and we look back in history just a little bit, as little as 50 years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, uh, divorce was a relatively rare occurrence, and People that had that had been divorced had this stigma attached to them that you know it was they were sort of in a lot of respects undesirable characters you know you would hear people oh that person's been divorced you know and you know they, it was just a people were looked down on 
for being divorced. But today in our society, people, they don't have any stigma at all attached to it. They don't have any negative connotations at all as far as our society goes attached to it. So we can see that the idea and the structure of our families in our country today has definitely broken down. You know, God has it as a primary building block for our society. and But man today just really has no value to it, it doesn't seem like. Because you hear people, these people I've known, they talk about, well, I've got uh, three or four daddies and hands full of grandparents and all that because their parents have been married and re- divorced and remarried so many times. Right. So uh, definitely it's it's a shame that our society really, as we've turned slowly turned away from God, we've... Uh, our family has uh, certainly the family unit has suffered as a result of that well let's go ahead Monty and get into some of the some of the questions that we sent out uh, our first question as you mentioned that was sent to our distribution list this evening which by the way again you can chime in on this discussion via email if you send an email to questions at collegeview.com as we look at that first question which was list in order of importance the three most important things that a person should be looking for in a mate and we got some some answers that uh, that really dovetail with the the material that we were prepared to discuss tonight. And Phil Hunt from uh, from Spring Hill, Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken, has sent this uh, as his number one criterion for uh, that we should be looking for in a mate is he says is this person scripturally eligible to enter into marriage with me? For example, are they of the opposite gender? Not currently married, not divorced, etc. So, yeah, that's uh, that really is sort of the first thing that we might think of. Sort of the basic um, determining factor is this person that I'm considering uh, entering into marriage with. Am I? Is that a person who, in God's eyes, is someone that I can marry? That I'm, in in other words, legally, in terms of God's law, able to marry. So. Uh, Monty, what what do we have to say about that? Well, you know, the Bible tells us there's requirements for entering into marriage. Uh, we see repeatedly in the Old and New Testaments that God expects marriage partners to be, as Phil mentioned here, of the opposite gender. Uh, homosexuality is clearly condemned in the Bible. And like I say, it was condemned in the Old Testament. It's condemned in the New Testament. And some of the Apostle Paul's list of people that were not going to go to heaven, uh, homosexuals, People that was practicing in homosexuality were were in, included in that list. So if we were looking for someone to marry, uh, we would have to be looking if we're going to be pleasing to God of someone of the opposite gender. Right. It's funny that well, it's not funny. It's a shame, really, that we have to even say that. And because, in, as we all know, in this day and time, you know, the that is not a foregone conclusion that it would be someone of the opposite gender. We obviously are seeing um, more and more of this same-sex marriage. Uh, coming along so it, it's definitely a consideration you know when i was in the fifth grade nearly 40 years ago to sort of give you an idea how old i am uh in the town i grew up in dixon tennessee we didn't have homosexuals that we knew of so when i was in the fifth grade there was a person who happened to go to church where i did that came out of, clo- out of the closet so to speak and let it be known that openly that he was a homosexual well, it was bad enough that we in the church had to know that, but it went all around school. Did you know that this person was a homosexual? And, you know, he goes to church where you do mm-hmm. and, and all of that kind of thing. But it was so rare at that time that one person in the town being a homosexual was a big deal. Uh, I have no idea how many people are that way over there now, but if it if someone pointed out that so-and-so over there is a homosexual, it would be, Oh, and, you know, that'd be the extent of it. People wouldn't think too much about it anymore. And it's really sad that our society has degraded to that point that a sin that God refers to as abomination, you know, and when we think of an abomination, that's something that makes us sick to our stomach to where we want to throw up. So that sin makes God want to throw up, so to speak, and something that's that repulsive to God, people just say, oh, so what, and don't think anything about it. Right. It really goes to show how far, again, that we've come away from God's will. Well, we're we're already up against our first break, Monty, which is hard to believe. So we uh, we've got a decent amount of ground to cover. So we might have to pick up the pace a little bit. But it is just about time for our first break. So uh, during this break, if you can go ahead and join in the conversation, jump in the chat room. It looks like we've got one or two folks in there. And uh, if you're if you're a guest in the chat room, I apologize that we're not able to get your comments. If you 
if you're willing to, try taking a second to just create an account on Ustream. It doesn't ask for any personal information. You don't have to divulge your Social Security number or anything like that. So maybe take a second to just create a username, and then you can jump in there and, and join in the discussion. And and it looks like we've got another email coming in on our question, so we appreciate that. So during this break, go ahead and take the opportunity to join in the discussion tonight. We'll go ahead and take that first break, and we'll be right back after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Hi, my name is Mike Johnson. I'm a member here at the College of You Church of Christ. Have you ever heard someone say that the members of the Church of Christ are too legalistic? Generally, people say this when we say that we must be careful to follow all the commands that God has given us. When we say, God says we must do this, or God doesn't command us to do that, people respond with, the members of the Church of Christ are too legalistic. Well, while it may be impossible to know exactly what people mean when they make this accusation, if they are accusing us of being legalistic because we say that we should follow all the instructions that God has given us, then that accusation is correct. But let me ask you this. Which of the commands that God has given us should we ignore? Can we pick and choose which commands we follow, or must we follow them all? Jesus said we have to follow all the commands of God when he said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? We want to call Jesus our Lord, so we try to follow all the commandments that he has given us. We don't in any way think that following God's commands earns our salvation, but we do think it is necessary to be pleasing to Him. Here at the College of You Church of Christ, we're trying to follow every command that God has given us. If, as a result, some people call us legalistic, then so be it. We think it's what God calls being righteous. Hi, my name is Mike Holt. My wife and I, we love listening to the virtual Bible study. Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The virtual Bible study. Take it away, God. And we're back on the Virtual Bible Study. We're glad you're joining us tonight. We're discussing the topic of choosing a mate tonight. And we were just talking about uh, our first question that we sent out to our distribution list tonight. What would be the three most important things that we should be looking for in a mate? And the first topic that we were talking about is, is whether or not the person we're considering is actually eligible in God's eyes to be married. And, of course, the first thing we were talking about uh, is, is you know making sure, of course, that that we're talking about uh, someone of the opposite gender, which, as we noted, in, in today's society is not necessarily a given thing. But let's also talk about um, that person's past in terms of whether they've been married before and so forth. You know, as we look at, at the Bible, really there are only three groups of people, as God defines it, that are really eligible to be married. Of course, the first would be those who have never been married in the past. Uh, the second would be um, a person whose spouse has died, and the third would be those uh, a person perhaps who had put away or had to divorce their mate uh, for the cause of fornication. Uh, as we look at in the Bible, Monty, it's clear in the New Testament that marriage is considered to be something that's a lifelong uh, engagement. Yeah, if we look in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And if you go on down, his disciples say in the verse 10, Well, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. So they were given to understand, and they understood what Jesus said here, that marriage is a lifelong commitment. And that really and truly, uh, as you said, there's... It's a lifelong commitment, so the only honorable way out is if your spouse has died or if your spouse has committed adultery against you, then you can divorce them for that. But other than that, those two reasons, uh, Jesus is saying you're going to be with this person that you've married forever, for the remainder of your life. And so the disciples understood that. But people in our society today uh, don't seem to have that notion at all. They just think, uh, well, I was talking to a fellow not long back, and he was married and him and his wife wasn't getting along, so he went and talked to some type of counselor, and the counselor told him, well, you don't have to stay in that relationship. So he thought, oh, okay, I'm going to divorce her. So he went home happy because he was going to get a divorce. And But that's not what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19. Right, and you know, even in our wedding ceremonies, even among people who are not Christians or not even necessarily believers in God in many cases, the person officiating over that marriage often will say, will quote the Bible and say, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder, which is uh, from uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 9. It says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man 
put asunder. So again, the the purpose in God's eyes of marriage is a lifelong commitment. So we we need to recognize that, of course, as we're considering marriage, and we need to. You know, it may not be something that we want to consider when we're looking at a mate as to whether they're eligible to be married in God's eyes, but that really is the logical first step that we need to take to make sure that this person, as we said, has either never been married before, has had a spouse who has died, or has uh, maybe they were married previously and divorced, and that divorce was for the only exception uh, that we see in the New Testament, in, and that is for the cause of fornication or or adultery. You know, and, and without trying to sound too difficult about it, but when you're looking at somebody and they tell you that they've been divorced, but it was before an acceptable reason, we really need to be very careful in our consideration for that person for marriage because maybe what they're understanding was an acceptable reason isn't, maybe their understanding isn't accurate. Right. So when we um, uh, con- consider someone to marry that has been divorced, and even though they feel like the reason was scriptural, we have to, we really need to investigate that further to make sure that it truly was. Because if we're just going on what they say, they may have been mistaken or not quite honest with us when in describing the reason for their divorce. And, you know, if we marry that person, then we've condemned ourselves if they truly weren't eligible in God's eyes for marriage. So that's a really, we need to be really, really careful about even considering someone that's been divorced, I believe. That's a good point, Mike. You know, it definitely adds another layer of complexity to the situation and something that we, we do have to be careful about. And, and I think it's good that we put that as our really kind of as the first logical step and uh, as we consider whether or not uh, the person we want to marry is someone we should marry. You know, going on down the list, some other things, some other responses that we got, uh, we kind of had some, some similar responses on the second point. Jack in Hampshire, Tennessee, writes in, has this future mate demonstrated their love for God by being obedient to his will and becoming a Christian? And in a similar uh, vein, Phil uh, says, does this person serve the Lord in truth and sincerity, and is there a commitment to do so for the rest of his or her life? I want to go to heaven with the help of my spouse, not in spite of my spouse. And we also just got a response from Preston. Preston says that his first uh, criterion would be whether or not the person is a faithful Christian, uh, also willing to love you and work hard for the relationship and being submissive to one another. So looking at those responses, Bonnie, we really this is kind of the second and, and quite another big thing that we need to consider is the person that we're considering marrying, are they a Christian? What about that? You know, if we're going to be a Christian, it, it's difficult in the world we live in to serve God faithfully in a lot of respects. There's a lot of challenges in life and a lot of things that will tempt us. And I know in my life there's times when maybe I wasn't being as so strong spiritually that because I had a Christian wife, she was able to build me up and keep me going the direction I ought to go. And then there was other times when she was having a weak moment that I was having I was luckily having a strong moment, and so I was able to help her stay in the direction we want to go. And it's just so much easier when, you, when you're both headed the same direction, you're both trying to be a Christian, and you're both trying to help each other to be Christians rather than having to contend with all the things that go along with being married to someone that's not a Christian. Right, and, you know, how much harder would it be as in your life as a Christian if, if you were the most important, you know, earthly relationship that you have, which being your spouse, if that relationship wasn't on equal footing when it when it comes to, you know, your spiritual goals, is the person that you're marrying, maybe they're not even interested in spiritual things at all. And that would certainly make it very hard for the Christian uh, to live a faithful life. It would certainly uh, create lots of difficulties for them. You know, Monty, a passage that always comes to mind when we talk about this. Yeah, it goes goes way back to the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 3, says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? And, you know, again, if you've got two people going in different directions, it's going to be hard for them to end up in the same place. You know, if, if, if you're a Christian, then the most important thing in your life, bar none, without any exception, should be serving God. Well, if you're married to a person that has no desire to serve God, so here you're planning your schedule for the week around uh, serving God, being attending the worship services or any other function of the church that might be going on during that week. Well, they're 
schedule is going in a different direction. So you're actually pulling away from each other rather than pulling closer to each other. And it's difficult, as, uh, as we was talking about, as Amos said, for two to walk together unless they be of one mind. You know, so if we need to find someone that thinks, relatively speaking, like we do and it has the same goals that we do so that we can be pulling together rather than pulling separately. Right. And, you know, if you think about it, if we are... If we're putting God first in our life, if we are going to God's word to look for his his will in our lives, then we it would almost follow naturally that we would want someone who has the same who is doing the same thing. You know, if if we're going to enter into a lifelong relationship with someone and we're a very faithful Christian and we're doing our utmost to follow God and follow his will, it, it, we would want someone who shares our same values. So it, it certainly follows that uh, a Christian, you know, would want to marry a Christian so that they could be walking in the same path and following after the same goals. And, you, you know, I think we we probably all know of situations where Christians have, have married uh, non-Christians, and certainly more often than not, those those situations uh, can can be fairly difficult, and in a lot of cases, um, you know, those marriages may end up either in divorce, uh, sadly, or what we often see, Imani, is that you know, as a Christian, say you're the the Christian and you're considering marrying a non-Christian, you might be going into that marriage thinking that you can change that person or that you could lead them to Christ. And certainly in some cases that does happen and that can happen. Um, But all too often it's much easier for the Christian to be pulled down and pulled into, uh, you know, a life of sin and pulled away from God by that unbelieving, unbelieving spouse. You know, there's a study that we see here that a fellow named Bobby Key did, and he preached for a church in uh, Oklahoma, it says, here for 20 years, and he compiled some interesting facts on marriage. Uh, there was 143 Christian young people in that congregation that married during the 20 years that he was keeping these records. Uh, 79 of them married non-Christians, and of, of those 79 that married non-Christians, 57 of them left the church, and 25 of them wound up being divorced. And uh, there were 22 that were still faithful as this, the time this was written, but only 14 had converted their mates. And so, you know, of 79 or 143 Christians that got married and of the 79 that married non-Christians, only 14 were successful in converting their mates. And so we just have to see, and I think that statistic would probably bear its way out through any other studies that we've done. That's probably the numbers would be similar. And so we can see that it's a very low number, relatively speaking, probably less than 10% of the total there that were able to convert their non-Christian mates. And in, in that same record-keeping study that he did, uh, there were 64 Christians that were married to other Christians. Well, only five left the church as compared to the 57 that was in the Christians that married non-Christians. Uh, 59 of them had remained as faithful Christians compared to the 22 in the other situation, and only two were divorced. So we can see here that just looking at these numbers, that it's you have a far greater chance of staying a Christian and, and being the person that you ought to be as far as God's concerned if you'll marry another Christian. Right, and you mentioned some of the difficulties that might arise. You know, we're not not saying it's not impossible. It, it, you know, we, I think, you know, as we said, we all know of cases where things maybe didn't turn out well. We do also know of exceptions where Christians have married non-Christians uh, and and they were able to, to make do, but... You know, some of the difficulties that, that we might have, for example, just thinking on a very practical level, if you're married to a non-Christian, what about getting to worship service on Sunday morning? You know, especially maybe if the wife is a Christian and the husband's a non-Christian, you know, maybe, uh, you know, the, the husband wants to go fishing, you know, and takes the family car to the, to the fishing hole right about time for services. And then, you know, that's going to make it a little bit hard for you to get there. Uh, just simple things like that. Um, we can also think about how the the money is controlled in the relationship. We know that Christians uh, should be givers, uh, people who, who give liberally. Uh, and if you have a spouse that's not a Christian, is not interested in spiritual things, they're not going to be very inclined to uh, to want to give uh, of their means. 
Well, you know, another problem you can run into has to do with raising your children. You know, if you're a Christian and you've married a non-Christian and you're not able to convert them, well, eventually, most likely, you're going to have children. Well, mom and dad have a huge influence on the children. Well, if you're the spouse that's trying to take, teach your children about God and about Jesus and about the importance of worship and, and things like that, well, when you're getting them, when you've got up on Sunday morning getting ready for prayer, go to church, uh, here's the, the children saying, well, you know, mom or dad, whichever the case is, they're not getting up and getting ready to go to church. Why not? And you're trying to tell them this is the most important thing in the world, but here's their other parent uh, having no influence or no emphasis at all on it. So you're giving the children a mixed signal. It just makes it such a complicated ordeal and so difficult to train them to be Christians also when you have a spouse that has no interest in that. Right. So I guess what we're saying, Monty, is that it's it, it's definitely you're creating a, quite quite a few obstacles in your path. If you were to choose to marry a non-Christian, it's, it's going to make things fairly difficult for you. Not necessarily impossible, but definitely more difficult. And uh, so that's certainly something that we need to consider as we uh, look at a prospective mate, is whether or not this person is a Christian. Certainly would be much easier for us to get to heaven if, if that uh, potential mate is also a Christian. Well, we're up against our second break. So, again, as we take this break, take the opportunity to join into the discussion tonight. I'm sure we've got some folks who have some, some opinions on, on this topic. I think it's a, it's a very interesting and a very important topic. So join in by sending us an email, questions at collegeview.com, or give us a call at one eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. We'll be right back after this. Enjoying the virtual Bible study? Email a friend during this break and tell them to join in on the discussion. There's more exciting Bible study after this commercial. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's Bullet Point. This week in our Vacation Bible School at College U Church, we've been studying the book of Acts. There are always some questions as to what happened after Acts ended. The book of Acts actually ends with the Apostle Paul still in custody in Rome. The emperor had not yet heard his case, and Luke did not reveal the outcome of his appeal. There is some indication, however, that he was anticipating his release. He wrote to Philemon and said, quote, Prepare me also a lodging, for I trust through your prayers that I shall be given unto you. Philemon, verse 21. There are three books in the New Testament that give a brief glimpse of the things that the Apostle Paul did after the inspired history of the book of Acts ends. They are 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, it is apparent that he had been released from his Roman confinement. He spoke of being recently in Ephesus on his way to Macedonia. He left Timothy behind in Ephesus to tend to some important matters, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 2-4. through 4. This scenario does not match any of the travels of Paul that are recorded in the book of Acts. We conclude, therefore, that it must have happened after the end of Acts. In Titus, the apostle mentioned traveling to the Isle of Crete. He left Titus there with specific instructions to, quote, ordain elders in every city, chapter 1, verse 5. At the end of the book, Paul urged Titus to meet him in Nicopolis, where he intended to spend the winter, chapter 3, verse 12. Nicopolis is on the route from Crete to Dalmatia. We know that Titus later went to Dalmatia, 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. It is highly probable that Paul and Titus did meet in Nicopolis before Titus continued his journey to Dalmatia. Again, none of this information matches anything written in Acts. By the time that 2 Timothy, Paul's last epistle, was written, he had been rearrested and had already been through one trial, chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. He mentioned some of his recent travels that apparently had occurred just before his arrest. He had left a cloak and some books at Troas, chapter 4, verse 13. And he had visited Miletus and Corinth, where he left some friends, chapter 4, verse 20. There's also a hint that he had been in Ephesus and that there had been some trouble there, chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. It is clear that he believed his case was soon to end in his execution. He wrote, quote, I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Additionally, it is commonly believed that Paul visited Spain during the brief period of freedom between his two prison confinements. It is certain that he planned to do this before his first arrest, Romans chapter 15, verses 24 and 28. And early tradition holds that he did so. This is what we can deduce about the travels and work of the apostle that happened after the end of the book of Acts. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. My name is Jack Coleman member of the College View Church of Christ. We're glad you're listening to the virtual Bible study, and we hope you'll tell others about the program. We're always open to your feedback concerning topics for discussion and suggestions as how we can make the program more effective. Drop us a line at questions at collegeview.com or call us toll-free at 
381-4567. Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. And welcome back to the virtual Bible study. We're discussing the qualities that we might consider in choosing a mate tonight. And we've already talked about a couple of things. The first point we made was that the person that we're considering marrying should be someone who's eligible to be married in God's eyes. And we talked about the fact that, it, that you know, asking the question whether or not the person we're considering is a Christian and how that it certainly would be uh, beneficial if that person is, is a Christian and really uh, to marry a, a non-Christian or non-believer would certainly add quite a bit of a burden to our lives as we try to um, you know, work through in that marriage relationship as a lifelong relationship. You know, Monty, another point that that I wanted to make is, you know, we talked a little bit at the beginning about how, you know, in popular culture and in our society, marriage and and love is is portrayed as just sort of a puppy love kind of thing, and it's all about affection. It's a very shallow definition of love, and and we toss around the word love pretty flippantly, um, you know, and, but as we look at the Bible, the idea of love goes much deeper than simply an affection or an attraction for someone. So I was thinking that, you know, as we're looking for a mate, you know, the question we might ask is, do they really know what love is? And do they really understand the definition of love? And I thought we'd just take a look at uh, a key passage in, the, uh, in this regard, and that is uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Starting in verse 4, uh, the King James Version uses the word charity, but the the, the word there uh, could also be translated love. And, and Paul says, uh, Charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. So there's kind of a, a long list of things there that that sort of describe and define love in terms of godly love and, and biblical love. And so, you know, I think it would be interesting to, you know, sit down with that potential mate and, and look at this passage and talk about those things. You know, Anthony, when we think of love suffers long, uh, what that comes to mind is that if we love someone, truly love someone, the type of love that it's talking about here, it's not something that's going to be over with. The first time they make us mad, we're ready to dump them and go home to mom and dad or something like that. But it, it's a it's a process that we understand that we're going to have to be patient with them and they're going to have to be patient with us because we're not always going to agree on everything. So we've got to be the type of person that's patient, willing to work with the other type, with the other person in this relationship in order to make things work out, not that we're just going to quit at the drop of the hat and leave each other. Right. So, you know, again, we pointed out that, that in God's eyes, this marriage relationship is a lifelong thing. So if we have proper love for our spouse, um, then, then we would suffer long with them. You know, we, as we continue to look at that verse, uh, it says, "Charity envieth not." Uh, so again, you know, uh, the love that we have, and if we love our spouse, there wouldn't be envy in that relationship. Um, it says that charity is kind. We certainly should be kind to our spouses, and um, charity vaunteth not itself and is not puffed up. Uh, we wouldn't have an uh, an unhealthy view of ourselves, an unhealthy pride or self-centeredness would be uh, some a red flag that we might look out for, and it's something that that shouldn't shouldn't exist in uh, in our marriage relationship. You know, I think to go along with that, the next verse says that love does not behave rudely and is does not seek its own, is not provoked and thinks no evil. You know, if we love our our mate, we're not going to be rude to them. And so often we see in the world today, people. Uh, they, they're really insulting toward their spouse. Uh, the husband will make rude comments toward the spouse or insulting con- and, and in the pr- not just uh, when they're alone, but they'll do it in the presence of other people. They're really browbeating them or beating them down rather than doing things to try to lift them up, to make them uh, seem better than they are. They'll be rude to them. And, and, it, and, and then it also is kind of along that same idea. Uh, it says it does not seek it on. We're not self-centered. If we love our spouse... Everything doesn't have to be our way. 
uh, if we love our spouse, we'd be willing to give up what maybe should even be our way in order to accommodate them. And I think that's a very important consideration when we're talking about selecting a mate is finding someone that's not going to be rude, they're not going to be envying, they're not parading their self, they're not puffed up or arrogant, uh, and that they're not seeking their own. You know, that, that's what that's the kind of person we need to be looking for as a, in our in our for a spouse is not is people that's not going to have these bad behavior or character flaws. Exactly. And as we continue to to look at this passage, the next thing it mentions is is someone whose love is not easily provoked. So as we try to translate these qualities to a potential spouse, you know, we actually got a couple of responses. Preston mentions as uh, something to look out for is is someone who's quick-tempered. You know, as we're looking for a potential mate, when we're observing their character uh, traits, we might look out for someone who has a quick temper. And, and again, here in this passage, as we look at the, the qualities of, of true love, it says that it's, it, true love uh, does not allow oneself to be easily provoked. So something uh, something to think about there. Well, uh, we could go on and we could do a whole study, I imagine, Monty, on that passage in, in 1 Corinthians 13, but let's uh, let's look at some other things here that uh, that we can talk about. You know, uh, one of the things I was thinking about as we talk about love, if we look in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, in verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for. And you go on down here in verse 28, it says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Uh, Jesus, the type of love it's talking about here, as you've mentioned earlier, a lot of the world today thinks of love as this gooey, uh, puppy love, emotional thing. Well, if love can be commanded as it was here in Ephesians chapter 5, then it's not an emotion. It's not this gooey, sappy thing, but it's an attitude that we're to have toward our, as, as it mentioned here, toward our wives, but it's also other places talk about the wife and her duty to love the husband. So God expects us to love each other as a husband or wife. And so the, he's talking about the attitude that we have toward them. That We're to develop that attitude of love toward them, and that's developing this attitude that we was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a command that we do that. So when we're looking for someone for a spouse, you know, we're talking tonight about selecting a mate. When we're looking for that mate, we need to be looking for someone that's willing to, to learn to love me, that's going to have this attitude as described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, because it's a command of God. This is not an optional behavior, but it's a command that God's given us. Exactly right. So, you know, love is something that we tend to trivialize in, in, our, in our society, but really as we look at, at the Bible, uh, love is a lot more than, than simply a fleeting feeling or a feeling of, of uh, attraction and, and that sort of thing. Well, Monty, let's let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, our second question that we sent out tonight to our distribution list. Um, the question was, list any red flag warning signs that one should be aware of in a potential mate. We already talked a little bit uh, about um, some some of those things as we were discussing in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We talked about someone who maybe has a quick temper or someone who has an inordinate, uh, say, amount of pride in their lives. Let's, let's look at a couple of the responses we got back on this question. Uh, Phil mentions uh, three things uh, that he considers important warning signs that we might be aware of. First, he says, the potential mate is unwilling to directly answer questions about his or her past. That's certainly a warning sign. Uh, you know, are they trying to hide something? We talked about being forthright about, you know, their eligibility to, to marry. But, Monty, in general, that certainly would be a warning sign if our potential mate is not willing to talk about their past. You know, when we think about being married to someone, uh, it needs to be someone that we can trust. And we need to be forthright and honest with them. And if, you know, if my wife has questions or, the, if, or when we were dating, if she had questions about my past and asked me these questions, I need to, to fess up and tell her, you know, answer her questions and be straightforward about things, not beat around the bush or deceitful about it. Because, you know, if, if, if I've got things hidden in my past that I don't want her to know, then she probably really didn't need to be with me. She probably didn't because I'd be the type of person probably that would bring her down. So, you know, we need to have a person, if we're considering them for marriage, and they're unwilling to answer questions about our past, and that should be a big red flag warning that says run. 
Definitely. <laughs> that, that one's kind of just a, a common sense kind of thing that we ought to look out for. Um, the second thing that Phil mentions in his response was the potential mate is not committed to becoming one flesh. He or she is either unwilling to cut the proverbial apron strings or expects that each mate will more or less simply live parallel lives. And, you know, Monty, we've talked about this, I know, here at College View in in different classes before, and this could be a problem. You know, Jesus said that, uh, you know, in God's plan for marriage that the, the, the man would leave his father and mother, so you have a leaving going on, and that would cleave uh, to his wife, and the two would become one flesh. And, you know, we see in some cases where that leaving uh, of the the family, of the parents, and cleaving to the spouse doesn't always happen, and that can cause problems. Yeah, quite often it does. I know when Tina and I got married, I believe I had a, a bit, little bit of problem with that because I thought that every Sunday night after church we were supposed to go out there for supper you know, without fail, and there'd be other Christians invite us to go somewhere with them, maybe on Sunday night after church. Oh, no, we can't. We've got to go to Mom and Daddy's. And, uh, and that built up some resentment, I think, between me and Tina for a while until we, till I was able to, to do that leaving and cleaving and, and, and get my relationship more along the order of the way it ought to be. So I know it made a resentment in her toward that. And, but that's something we've got to do. You know, we've got to find that person and make that commitment to each other if we're going to be married that, you know, it's not that we're never going to see our, our parents again. You know, the leaving and cleaving, I don't think means that, but it means we're going to put our spouse first. Uh, mom and daddy's going to be in the back seat somewhere. I mean, not in the back seat, but they're going to be further back in the background somewhere. And, and our wife or our husband is going to be number one. And, and their needs and desires is what's going to come first. Right. And, and as we said, the, the, the verse that we're referencing here, there, it appears a few times in the Gospels. Uh, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5, it says, uh, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the twain shall be one flesh. And that's the second point that Phil mentioned is that, and, you know, we see this a lot, and, and it, to me it just it's almost hard to just imagine, but we see people who get married, but they don't really become one flesh. They live, as Phil put it, parallel lives, and they, you know, the, the husband has his his friends, his money, you know, his hobbies. The wife has her friends and her own money and maybe even in many cases her own job, her own career. And they're just kind of two people that are living together, but they're really not together. Mm-hmm. You know, and we when we decide we're going to be married to someone, we probably might have to give up a bunch of the things we like to do. Uh, it's not saying we can't ever do anything it's not saying the guy can't ever go someplace with one of his guy friends and go like I like I, I like to go hunting. It's not saying I can't ever go hunting with the guys, but that's not going to be my every weekend thing. That's not going to be my constant thing that I'm leaving my wife at home just so I can go and hang out with the guys and do guy things. I need to be building that relationship and becoming stronger and closer with my wife rather than just we both happen to live at the same house and share the same bed and eat at the same meal, occasionally eat at the same meal at the same, you know, because when we think about that parallel lives and that not cleaving to my spouse, not cleaving to my wife, as Jesus talked about there, that means I'm putting other things ahead of her and I'm not building the relationship that God demands that I do. So we have to really think about that really hard. If we're, if we're going to be a, a husband or a wife, if we want to be married to somebody, we need to be willing to make those sacrifices in order to cleave. Exactly. That's a, definitely, a, it's a, it's a command. It's a, it's a, teaching of God that we do that so we ought to you know be careful that and maybe as we're in our current marriages we need to examine and see if we're if we're trying to kind of maintain that separation and putting a little wall there we need to take a look at that and maybe consider uh, making some changes you know I think one place that really shows us whether we're making that effort to leave and cleave or not is you talking about that separation uh, is in our money because I hear so many people, and I was talking to somebody the other day, and they was talking about, well, her money and his money. Right. Well, if we're being what we ought to be, it's our money. You know, I might be, the, in my household, I'm the one that goes to work and earns the money, and my wife stays home and fulfills the duties of a housewife. Is the Bible, I believe the Bible teaches us that she's supposed to do. But when I get paid every other week, and today was payday, when I brought it home, it's our money then. You know, it's not, this is my money, and 
I'm just going to give you a little bit of it or whatever. But this is our money. We've got to pay our bills with it. We do our entertainment with it. We do our contribution to the church with it. Everything that we do, it, it's ours. And so if we're still approaching things in a marriage with the your money, my money attitude, then we obviously we're not making that proper effort to cleave as God would have us to. Right. There's something not qu- not quite uh, as God would have it in that situation. Well, Monty, we're... We're a little bit late for our last break, so let's go ahead and squeeze that in and give you a chance to respond. We just got another response to our last question, which we'll look at after the break, so we appreciate that. So go ahead and join in. Email us at questions at collegeview.com or join in the chat room. We'll be right back after this. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. Hello, everyone. I'm Wade Shelton, a member of the College View Church of Christ. If you're like me, you've probably heard a lot of rumors about what the Church of Christ is all about. But regardless of what the rumors you may have heard, let me just quickly tell you what we are about. The College View Church of Christ is simply a group of Christians that is committed to doing everything that God has commanded us in exactly the way that He commanded us to do it. So we just simply open our Bibles and study them to determine what God has commanded us to do, and then we try to do it. It's just really that simple. Are you interested in being part of a group of people who have this approach to serving God? If so, I hope you will join me and my family as we worship God with the College View Church of Christ this Sunday at 9.30 a.m. I am Nestor Sanchez from Arica, Chile, and South America. And I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. And this moment, I invite you to participate in this program, too. Gracias. All right. Thanks for joining us. We're back at the virtual Bible study. We're talking again tonight about how to choose a mate. And the first, uh, we've already talked about, you know, things that we should consider and we're looking for a mate, sort of important things that we should be on the lookout for. We briefly talked about some, maybe some red flags that might, that we might see as we're, uh, as we're considering a person uh, to be a potential mate. And the third question that we sent out and that we want to wrap up our discussion with is, uh, how or where can a God-fearing person find a mate? You know, we've been talking all this time as if you've already got somebody that you've got in mind, but maybe, Monty, the first thing that you have to do is actually find someone and hopefully find someone that that meets some of the characteristics that we've already talked about. You know, the the way the question was phrased is, where can a God-fearing person find a mate? Well, when we think of that aspect of being a God-fearing person, and we've talked about wanting to have similar goals and leaving and cleaving and these kind of things, well, where am I going to find somebody with those kinds of goals that that fears God like I do? Well, I think the first place that we should think about looking for uh, would be at where God's people congregate, as in a place of worship. I know if I was looking uh, for a God-fearing woman, that's where I met my wife, was was where I worshipped at that time, and I'm very happy about that. But, you know, if you're looking for a God-fearing person, you wouldn't go to a bar. Uh, you wouldn't go to other places of ill repute or whatnot, however you want to phrase that, to go looking for a God-fearing person because the people are at these kinds of places. Uh, if they had studied the Bible and were God-fearing, they'd know they wouldn't be at those places. So you, if you're going to, I mean, it's like if I'm going deer hunting and I want to find a deer, I go to where deer live. Well, if I'm uh, looking for a wife, I go to where a good quality wife, I go to where good quality people are and start my search there. And so I think the first place we could think of is going to a place of worship where God's people are regularly at. Absolutely, and, and that certainly is, I think, what comes to mind. Um, you know, Jack mentions in response to that question, that's exactly what he said. He said, I would begin looking for a mate wherever faithful saints are congregating. So that's kind of the first logical place to look for that. We got a, a, an email from Don, who's one of our frequent listeners. We appreciate Don um, joining in the discussion tonight. He kind of puts a little caveat to that point about, and I think it's an important one. We'll read his comments. Uh, caveat when it comes to looking you know, in the church or in an assembly for that. Uh, here are his comments. He says, in our busy society today, the main assemblies I know of where people can actually have opportunities to meet and get acquainted with each other are church, school, and work, etc. And he says, I figure the number one answer to your question will be church. However, there should be great caution in this since many churches today are very liberal, especially with the issues of divorce and remarriage. Even some churches of Christ have twisted God's, twisted God's word on divorce and are supporting unscriptural marriages. He says that no matter where it is that a godly person interacts with others, whether church, school, or other places, 
if that person exhibits his or her beliefs and is not backward about standing up for righteousness, then I believe this will attract other godly people. And I think he makes a couple of good points. We do, of course, you know, just because we find somebody in a church setting or in, in a congregation of the Lord's church doesn't in itself mean that that person necessarily has their priorities in their life uh, life right. There, You know, there could be, uh, you know, someone there who maybe they're attending the services and so forth, but when you get to know that person, they really don't have uh, have their lives right with God. Well, that's, that's true because we know... As at, as at our place of worship, from time to time, there's people that fall away, and the church has to withdraw from them. So obviously, that means that everyone at the congregation is not necessarily a sound, faithful, God-fearing, totally dedicated in their commitment to God in their life. But by the same token, you have a better chance of finding somebody that's going to have God and put Him number one at a place of where there's people gathered together. Because there's an old saying that birds of a feather flock together. So, you know, if you're looking for Christian people, then you go where Christian people hang out. Right. I would certainly start there. I do think Don makes a good point. We, we still need to, to engage in a feeling out process and get to know that person. Yeah, we still need to make sure that person's eligible and qualified to be married. Just because they're, at, as he said, just because they're at a place of worship and that's where I met them doesn't mean they're eligible. Right. And, you know, Don makes another good point um, talking about, if we uh, if we are doing our part as a Christian to let our light shine and to sh- and to live as a Christian would live and and to to exhibit as Don the, to use his words exhibit our beliefs, then I think Don's right that we will attract some you know we will attract people who have those similar beliefs. You know it, it, you know we're not gonna you know if we are letting our light shine and people can see that we're putting God first in our lives, then we're not that, uh, it's, it's not that likely that we're going to attract a very worldly person. And that's to our advantage. Well, when you, when you are putting God first, if it's a worldly person, they're going to think, that fellow's weird. I don't want nothing to do with him. So not only will be, we'll be attracting by putting God first in our life and letting that show, not only will be attracting the right kind of people, but we'll also be repelling the wrong kind of people because someone who's not interested in God is not going to be interested in us if we're living like we ought to live. Exactly right. So, you know, again, it, it kind of goes back to the whole idea, of, as Jesus said, to, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If, if we're doing that, then so many things are going to go our way and so many things are going to be better. And, and that this particular example just being one of those. You know, we've talked a lot tonight about finding a mate and the qualities and the characteristics that we're looking for in that. But I think something we also have to consider is that it may be that wherever we're at, there's not an eligible mate there, there's not a person that's qualified, there's not a person that's going to put God first in their life. And it would be better uh, for us to live our whole life single and never marry than it would be to marry the wrong person and and be terribly hindered or prevented from going to heaven because of that. That's right. And and Paul even says that, uh, even mentions that you know it, he he even goes so far as to to recommend that at least in in that present time that the folks might consider staying single because he says that uh, in verse uh, in First Corinthians seven verse thirty three for example he says he that is married careth for the things that are of the world how he may please his wife and so forth and so on so you know. If we if we aren't able to find that mate, maybe we remain unmarried. It's not necessarily a bad thing. And Paul uh, points out in that chapter, First Corinthians seven, that it can be a very good thing that we could focus more on on doing God's will, and and certainly that is sort of a silver lining to that situation. So uh, not something that we should necessarily feel badly about. Well, Monty, I believe it or not. I think we're hitting right up against the top of the hour. We've made it through tonight without, uh, I hope, too many gaffes or difficulties. I think we, I think our stream uh, is making it out over the internet, so that's a good thing. And we appreciate everybody uh, chipping in. We got some email responses and some folks listening in in the chat room. We appreciate your participation. And um, and again, we we made it through, Monty. Yeah, it's been a good experience. I've enjoyed being here tonight and studying God's Word with you, Anthony. Well, thanks. Yeah, thank you very much, Monty, for coming. I, I was very much looking forward to this. It's always a pleasure and uh, to hear your thoughts and comments. And 
And again, we're we're thankful for all of those who participated in in the program tonight. So uh, I'm not sure if I can sign off the show with as much uh, uh, flourish as Jacob does. He, they, Jacob and Greg do such a great job. And we appreciate them. But uh, as Jacob always says, uh, we encourage you to uh, to put God first in your life and to study His Word, the Bible, every day. You'll never regret it. So that's tonight's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.